2: Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is call us. Please remember that you're more interesting than I am, so your calls matter, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as I remind you every day on the program, if you're driving in your car, The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, had a great weekend here at the church. I hope you had a great weekend and I hope that somebody got saved at your church this weekend. That means we'd be one person closer to... To Jesus returning for us. Um, we also have a lot going on tonight. We have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies going on here at the church at seven o'clock. Um, Pastor Candleby be teaching the men. Um, Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew teaching the junior high school and high school age kids. So you can make it a family affair. Our ladies tonight and next week as well are going to be going through sort of a uh, what I call a retreat de- debrief. Um, You know, they're going to share their hearts, what the Lord sort of spoke to them while they were on uh, their retreat last week. And that's always a good thing. You know, uh, not everybody could go to this, obviously, but it's a great opportunity for them to share. Uh, what the Lord was speaking to them. It's always a neat thing. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Ladies, your part can be watched at calvarysa.com online. Um, All you have to do is there. But remember, it's always better to be here. A lot of ministry happens when the cameras go off. Well, let's get to questions as we await your phone calls. Dave will start. He wants to know, is worry a sin? Um, No, it's not a sin. I know people disagree with me on that. Jesus said, do not worry. Be anxious for nothing. Do not fear. But the reality is we're human beings and we worry. And we're afraid. And we have anxiety. It's just the kind of thing. I think, Dave, where the sin comes in is how we respond to worry. You know, Sometimes we let worry consume us. We worry about things that God has in control. Uh, we worry about things because we haven't surrendered Um, the circumstances fully to the Lord. There's a lot of reasons we worry. But remember, whatever thing we're going through, the Holy Spirit, if you'll give him the opportunity, will lead you through that into a place where at the end of it, you'll trust Jesus more, you'll love him more, and you'll be more like him. So worry in and of itself isn't a sin. Any more than bad words coming to your mind or ugly thoughts about people coming to your mind. We can't control that. Many, many times... Those thoughts come from an enemy. And believe me, if there's one button, Dave, that the devil knows how to push, it is the worry button. I think he works so much on making us worry about things that haven't even happened yet. Now imagine that for a moment. God gives grace every day, but if we're worrying about something that hasn't happened yet, we're trying to spend grace that he hasn't provided yet. So uh, he wants to get us to be Um, immobilized in worry. He wants to convince us that God doesn't really care for us or God doesn't really have this one covered. So, um, again, Dave, I think very strongly worry is not a sin, but how you react to it could turn into sin and certainly will give the enemy an opening if we don't respond to worry in faith. Let me also say this. Faith is the antidote. I always say to fear, but faith is also the antidote to worry. I think if we remember how faithful God has been, how good God has been to us, um, I think that will diminish uh, our level of worry. And then it becomes a triumph of faith. And faith is the only way that we can walk with Jesus. Good question, Dave. Thank you very, very much. Patrick wants to know, was it easier for Old Testament saints to obey God or for us since we have the Holy Spirit? Patrick, I love this question because I think too often, especially as we read through the Old Testament and we read about these wonderful feats of faith, we, we read about the, the circumstances that some of these Old Testament saints overcame, all we have to do is go through Hebrews chapter 11. And we think, oh, I wish I had faith like that. Those people, um, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. You know, the question that we just had from Dave about worry. Uh, They worried about things because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, You and I, Patrick, we have the Holy Spirit. And that means we have the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us. The Old Testament saints didn't have that. Not for their day-to-day lives. Now, it's true that the Spirit of God would come upon them in power. But a completely different relationship. He, the Holy Spirit, is in us. The best that the Holy Spirit could do to the Old Testament saints prior to Jesus' death and resurrection was to come upon people in power. And he would be there enabling them to do what what God needed them to do or what God called them to do. But then the Spirit would leave again, the the power of the Spirit would leave again. Again, they were left to deal with things just like us. You know, one example, uh, Patrick, one of my cherished Old Testament characters is Gideon. Uh, The book of Judges is just, I think it's the most fun Old Testament book to teach because the character studies are so rich. Uh, But Gideon, you know, people say, well, Gideon threw out a fleece, and then he got the answer, and he threw out a second fleece. So if I throw out a fleece... Um, Gideon threw out that fleece because his faith was weak. You and I have something Gideon didn't. We have direct access to God day after day after day. And so if we'll remember that, then I think we have to step up and take the responsibility. It's easier for us to obey because we have God's spirit. We have that power and that instant access to God that they could only dream about. You know, Patrick, I've said this many times to our church here, but but you, you know, we read through Hebrews 11, and we think about all the things that they did and all the things that they went through, and we think, oh, I wish I'd be like that. I can promise you that every single Old Testament state, saint, if they could make the choice right now, they would choose to be in the relationship we have with Jesus way, way more than the relationship that they enjoyed with God. So uh, I I don't think it's ever easy for the, the Old Testament saints to obey, but that's why they overcame by faith. You and I, all we have to do is remember that that power lives in each and every one of us. That's a great question. Thank you, Patrick. Joe wants to know, is smoking marijuana a sin? Joe, you probably already know that the answer to that question is yes. Of course it's a sin. It doesn't matter that it's legal. Drinking too much is, is legal, but it's certainly not something that God condones. So it's sin as well. And, and I tire a little bit of these arguments. Well, marijuana is natural. It's just an herb. The marijuana that is on the streets today is so processed, sold with such power, uh, so much more potency. Then when I grew up, now remember, I, I haven't done drugs, so I'm, I'm not uh, a, a good comparison. But the, the, the marijuana today is completely different. And instantly, instantly, you're high. And we're to live sober lives. We're not to be drunk, whether it's on wine, alcohol, or on marijuana or other drugs. We're to live sober lives. Not only is it a sin, Joe. But when we're smoking marijuana and we get into an altered state of consciousness, and when I use that term, people say, well, you don't really get into an altered state of consciousness. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And you're inviting the enemy through those drugs. You're inviting the enemy to, to, to destroy you. I mean, he's trying anyway, but you're, you're opening the door and inviting him. And, and people that smoke marijuana, and I get these questions fairly frequently, Joe, the people that are smoking marijuana, their relationship with God is cut off and in many of the cases marijuana actually becomes their little G-God. Well, I can't relax, I can't sleep without it. It's just there's nothing wrong. I'm I'm fully functional. You know you're not. It's controlling you. And anything that masters you or anything that controls you is a sin because God wants that position in your heart and in your mind. So, yeah, Joe, smoking marijuana is a sin. If you're a born-again Christian and you're struggling with this question, I just completely ended your struggle. Now all you have to do is make a decision. Are you going to obey God? Or are you going to do what feels right for you to do? So smoking marijuana, doing anything that affects your brain, is sin. It also gives the enemy an opportunity to pound you. Very, very important. Here is a question from Andrew. He wants to know, what is the significance of the woman with the issue of blood touching the hem of Jesus' robe? You know, Andrew, throughout the, the, the New Testament, you'll find examples of uh, what I call superstitious praying. Um, people with little tiny, tiny faith, um, and they were praying superstitiously, and their faith wasn't even informed faith, uh, but, but God honors faith. And uh, you remember when when uh, uh, Paul gave away the, the wristbands that he worked in. Uh, Peter's shadow would go down the street, and people would get in the shadow, and they would be healed. Um, th- those were superstitions that were believed at the time. And God, as always, because God is gracious, meets people where they are. This woman with the issue of blood, she was taking a huge risk. By bleeding, she would have been unclean. Um, the penalty for being unclean uh, could have been um, uh, being stoned to death. Um, but this was a desperate woman. And she just thought, I know I can't get too close to him, but I'm going to try to do all I can if even I touch the hem of his robe, It was simply a point of contact for her faith. And the minute she touched it and virtue, the King James, I love that word, uh, virtue uh, came out. Um, it was at that moment that very moment that um, Jesus turned around and said, "Who touched me so superstition on her part, but it was the faith that got honored, and that's the significance, so that's all it was um, and this woman who came uh, in in terminal condition and she continued to bleed, she was bleeding for twelve years uh, she couldn't have lived very much longer. one touch of Jesus just just in the faith. To reach out and touch him, and everything changed in an instant. Andrew, good question. Thank you very, very much. Hey, 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anonymous from our email inbox. Pastor on, how do we keep the youth with Jesus? The church I'm at currently is having trouble holding on to youth attendance. Are you having the same problems? What does your middle school and high school do? I'm worried this generation is lost. Anonymous, this is a really, really big hot button for me. Uh, So I'm probably going to give you more time with this question than I would give most questions simply because this is such an important issue. First and foremost, Jesus said, as he was getting ready to go to the cross, he said, Father, I haven't lost any that you've given me. And that's still true. He hasn't lost any. Any that have been given, so if somebody was his, they will always be his. That's really important. They may have some ups and downs, but they will always be there. Secondly, we're not having any problem at all uh, holding on to youth attendance. Um, um, our, Our our youth ministries are packed. Um, and I think the reason, anonymous, that they're packed and people like to come, the kids actually enjoy it, is because they're learning the word. We don't do cool stuff. We 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 don't have beanbag chairs or games, air hockey, or or uh, fun games that they play with each other. We we bring them into the Bible study, sit them in a chair, and then they're taught the Bible. Period. And the Bible's exciting. It's just they've got to be introduced to it. And most churches and most youth ministries aren't doing that anymore. They're so interested in filling... I'm sorry. They're so interested in filling seats um, that they're they're no longer teaching the Word. and And kids know that. And these kids, they're facing life and death decisions every day. These kids, this generation is um a, a social media generation, their minds are being brainwashed they're being their minds are being warped uh, by the constant barrage of information. By the way, our brains were simply not equipped to deal with that much information, and they've got this constant barrage of information, false information, uh and they're being convinced and the reason they're being convinced is because they're not being taught in church the Bible. Uh, we just talked about this i i do a pastor's discipleship class uh here um every other saturday we just had one this past saturday and uh one of the things that we talked about was youth ministry and both of my youth pastors pastors were in the audience and i had the opportunity uh to uh to tell the, the people in the in the class look i intentionally picked the two most uncool youth pastors in the whole world. I, I told them, I don't want you to be cool. I don't want you to be the, the happening thing. I don't want people to fall in love with you. I want people to fall in love with your Jesus. And the only way that can happen is teaching the Word. And none of us, we have been, now uh, we have a bit of an advantage. Uh, we have so many kids who have been coming here their whole lives. Uh, we've been here for 27 years and and kids are born here and many of them go to the school here. But the reality is that um, they've been exposed to nothing but God's Word. We teach in our youth ministries, verse by verse. Uh, We teach verse by verse um, at every level, from from nursery school on up. And they know the Bible. They know the Word. And so they know what they're going to do. And they're not looking for games. They're not looking... Uh, for for cool discussions or or loud music. They're here to find Jesus. You know what else is happening, Anonymous, is kids are getting saved. That's the most important thing. Kids are getting saved. So too many of these kids, having not been exposed to the Word of God, are not really saved at all. They grew up in Christian homes. They made professions of faith. Um, Many of them were baptized as youth. But unless they're born again, they won't go to heaven. So our generation is lost. One final thought, anonymous on this. Um, And I shared this at this pastor's discipleship class Saturday as well. As parents, it is our responsibility to take phones away from these kids, for them to have unfettered access to information the devil is going to use to destroy them is irresponsible, unloving parenting. We parents have got to be able to look at our kids and say, no, you don't need a phone. You don't need to be on social media. Now, I understand. I'm not going to change the world. I understand the backlash emotionally that I'm going to get from a statement like that. Now, my church understands my heart. Many of you don't. But uh, this is a time when we who are parents have got to accept the responsibility. We're actually going to stand before Jesus and give account of our stewardship over our children. And if we let our kids have phones, knowing that they're exposed to all kinds of horrible information, if we do that, Jesus is going to say, why did you do that? I told you to love this kid. I told you to raise this kid in in the ways of God. Why didn't you do this? And At some point, I do believe there's going to be a backlash by parents as they watch their children um, claim to be gay, claim to be transgender, uh, because they've been convinced on social media that that's just the, the cool thing to do. So it's very important. This generation is in danger. What we've got to do as parents is take these kids back from an enemy and from a world that wants to destroy them. Thank you, Anonymous, for that. Let's go to line one. John from San Antonio, thank you for being patient and holding. John, you're on the air. John, are you still there? Did you hear me? Oh, I can hear you now, John. Thank you.
1: Okay. Yeah, the question is, is, who are the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb? I know the church is the bride of Christ, but who are the guests?
2: Oh boy, that's a great question. I've never thought of it in that in that sense. I think we're all the guests. I, I usually communicate, John, that we're the guests of honor, um, um, uh, as the bride. We're we're being married. We're probably all guests at other people's weddings. But you know that the reality is that uh, the Old Testament saints are going to be there. Um, um, there's going to be an angelic host there. Uh, i mean where jesus is his people are going to be gathered and and wouldn't it be great to think that at your wedding uh one of the witnesses might be abraham or gideon i mentioned earlier or or david or some of the so so uh the the guests can be seen two ways i think the traditional view john is that that we are all just the guests we're Jesus' guests of honor and we are the center of attention because we're going to become his bride Um, But um, it's also very possible that that the guests will be Old Testament saints, people that weren't part of the church uh, dispensation. And um, um, beyond that, I don't think we're given any more information or any specific details. So those are the two possibilities. And and I'm probably in the minority that would suggest that maybe the Old Testament saints are going to be there. Um, And yet, um, I think that seems highly likely. I think it seems highly likely. Good question, John. Thank you. I love that. See, that's a that's John smart guy. Can tell that just by the question he asked. When when people are curious, curious is a sign of two things, one interest and and or, and or passion and the other thing is intellect. That's a that's a good question, curiosity. Thank you. We're inside 4 minutes already for this half of the program. Here is a question from Lisa. Oops, I can't do that one in Four minutes. I can, Jeff. I can do Jeff's question. He says, Are Christians required to keep the Old Testament law? No, 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 a thousand times no. We don't have to keep the law. And I'm referring to the Ten Commandments in general. We get to. You see, that's just godly living. So, no, we're not required to. We don't live under the law. The law was given to Israel. And the law was given to Israel, Paul says very explicitly in order to lead Jews to their need, or, or at least to knowledge that they need Jesus Christ. The frustration about breaking the law, Paul said, I wouldn't know what coveting was. And then I said, the, I read the commandment, thou shalt not covet. And, and I knew I was guilty. Um, a schoolmaster is the, is the literal translation of the Greek word. Um, and, and we just kind of throw up our hands and say, I need Jesus. Jesus, Jeff, fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law, canceling the code that opposed us and gave us a new law. And he summed that new law up. Love the Lord your God with all All of your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second is as unto it or literally it's connected to it or flows from loving God. And that's to love your neighbor before yourself. So, no, we're not required to keep the law. We shouldn't be looking to keep the law. What we should do, Jeff, with grateful hearts, with truly grateful hearts, is be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. We've got an entire New Testament filled with this is the will of God, Um, admonitions to um, flee from sexual immorality, um, to trust God actively, to trust God, to walk by faith, um, um, to, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the, the the responsibility we have, not to keep the law. Now, Jeff, having said that, there are a lot of people out there that are very legalistic, and a lot of churches, and it's it's always been this way. It happened in the first century; it's still happening in the twenty second century, twenty first century. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, and, and there are people that are always going to try to bind you with the law. What did Paul say when he confronted Peter? We're trying to put a yoke on people, a burden on people that you yourselves as Jews could not keep. Why would we do that? So here's the thing we got to do we got to teach people. And Galatians 5.1 is the key in that book. It is for freedom that we've been set free. And the freedom is the freedom to walk with Jesus out from under the guilt of the Old Testament law, but with the power of the Spirit to walk by gratitude, to walk in gratitude, to be obedient to the Lord and bring him honor and glory. So, Jeff, we get to obey Jesus. We're not required to keep a law, 613 Old Testament laws beyond the Ten Commandments. Aren't you glad Jesus made it simple? I am. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our Monday show. 340 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome Welcome back to the program. 30 minutes left to answer your question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Rick from our email inbox. He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. As a new believer, should I be listening to Stephen Furtick? He seems like a cool guy, and what he says makes sense. But I watched one of his older videos, and he made a comment that if you are saved, this is not your church. This church is for unsaved people. That did not sit well with me. My friend told me to stay far, far away from him, and he's a false teacher. What are your thoughts? Um, Rick, I, 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 don't, I don't know Stephen Furtick. I, I don't know if he's a believer. He's not somebody that, that I've ever come across paths with. He is a terrible Terrible Bible teacher, Um, false teacher. Um, um, Believe me, that's not cool from heaven's perspective. Uh, The idea that a church is um, for unbelievers, um, you you know, all he's trying to do is he's doing like spiritual pep rallies for people. Uh, He is very popular with with carnal kids, uh, saved or unsaved. Uh, but but he is a terrible terrible teacher. So your friend is exercising discernment. Um, again, the, the the church we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what the Bible says the purpose of church is. And to to say, well, I've got a ministry where I only want unsaved people here. Um, that's not a ministry that is is that lines up with with uh, the Word of God at all. So. Um, he lives a very extravagant life. Um, and, and just you know, I Rick, let me say this. I'm I'm really frustrated with celebrity preachers, with these people that are trying to be cool and trying to be hip, and Stephen Furtick is the sort of the one that, that started that mold. You know the problem with that is he's gonna get older. He's he's already getting older. But, yeah, he's he's not a, not a good teacher, and you should stay far, far away from him, especially as a new believer. Thank you for that. Let's go to Jim on line one from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Jim, are you there? Are, can you hear me? I can hear you now, Jim. Thank you.
1: Okay. Um, by the way, i was just blessed to hear about the youth ministry that's grabbing at Charles Church. Uh I just appreciate your wisdom. And, uh, Thank you. you know, in a different sense, Jesus said, you know, let the little children come to me. And, you know, he, he loves it. So you're just focusing on Jesus and your youth ministers. And they're coming to Jesus rather than youth ministers. So I thought that, that just a
2: <laughs> So I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Tim.
1: So I had a question about the, the difference between a temptation and a trial. Maybe mm-hmm. specifically in James where it says, count all joy when you encounter different. And I don't know if that word is, is that in the Greek, the same word for temptation and trial. Could you make a distinction between those two, please?
2: Yeah, I, I can. I can make a practical distinction. It is often the same word, and they're interchangeable. Now, there's another word for trial that's a little more intense, but but I think when you when you read, for instance, uh, "No temptation to seize you except that which is common to man," that's a word that's interchangeable. It's First Corinthians ten thirteen. That word's interchangeable with with uh, tests or trials. Or temptations, so uh, I I think for the most part, Jim, those words are interchangeable. Uh, Practically speaking, though, um, you know, tests are something that we come across every day. Um, uh, You know, sometimes if we're walking in the will of God, He'll help us avoid these tests, or certainly He will prepare us for every test. But um, trials are something that sometimes it's God who takes us through. They're designed by God. You remember that Jesus, when He got baptized. Uh, by john and the spirit descended on him in the form of a dove the very first act of the holy spirit in jesus's life was to lead him into the desert to be tempted directly by the devil and and those were trials unlike anything that we would ever experience so um jesus obviously was prepared for that trial he handled it exactly the way we should handle it um but 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 there are times when god tests us in trials we go back to the exodus wilderness exodus uh, Deuteronomy um, has a lot of stories the book of numbers has stories where where they were led into tests by God himself and he did it to test them to see what was in their heart you know they they thought they knew what was in their heart but it's in the trials when they started complaining it's when the water ran out it's when the the, the, the food ran out and then God gave them manna God God provided an opportunity to show off for them. The reality is that we need trials in our lives um, because they make us more like Jesus. Paul even uh, in his letter to the Philippians talked about sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. So trials are an important part of every single person's life. Um, We just have to accept that some of those trials are designed by And then we are led into uh, those trials by the Lord himself. And great, great things happen as a result of us persevering through the trials. Temptations, the everyday temptations that come across in life are temptations that we are prepared for. All we have to do is respond in the spirit rather than in the flesh. When those temptations come. And just like Jesus, we will stand. That's what the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says. When you are tempted, God will provide a way out of that temptation so that we can stand up. And the idea there is to stand in victory. Good question, Jim. But yeah, the words are typically interchangeable in that context. Here is a question from larry from our email inbox he says hi pastor on amazing bible study yesterday thank you larry god bless you um you had mentioned divine appointments my wife and i had a discussion last week and i told her she needed to address an issue with her professing christian family about something that they are doing that's contradicting the bible she said i'm waiting for a divine appointment and that if jesus brings the appointment they will receive it better I told her that's not a divine appointment and that we need to address these matters immediately. She said she's praying about it. I told her divine appointments are situations that are not planned and we need to take a stand for Jesus immediately. These are not divine appointments. What are your thoughts? Larry, I have a lot of thoughts on this. um, And I want to do this without um, your wife taking my answer personally uh, at all. Um, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, and one of the things I talked about in my message yesterday was we, we have to stand with and for Jesus, no matter what's going on. And, 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 and for somebody to be waiting for a divine appointment to confront somebody who's a professing Christian um, who is, is, is living a life that contradicts the Bible, uh, for us to wait for a divine appointment is simply us saying, well, Lord, I'm really not ready to stand up for you yet. And I know, um, I'm sure that's not her heart, but um, God is waiting for us to be courageous. Now, as her husband, here's what I would do. I would say, let you and I go and address this together. Now, it's her family, um, but you're part of that family. And you you want her family to be in heaven. So here's the thing. You go and you say, Um, my wife and I have been talking about this, we've been praying about this, and we, we really need to talk to you about some of the choices you're making that professing Christians simply can't make. And then wait to see how they respond. Now, they may be angry, they may say you're judging them, they may want to cut your wife off for a while, they may be that upset, and they may blame you for doing it. Guess what? You're tough enough to deal with that. So we don't wait. That's really sort of the chicken way out. Um, uh, God's Spirit responds to obedience. And so when you see the need, you make the opportunity and then give it, just leave it in the hands of God the Holy Spirit. And be prepared for some backlash. Be prepared for some discomfort. But the one thing you can't do is just sit and wait like suddenly there's going to be a divine appointment when you're going to be able to do it. Because typically when we wait, things don't get better, they get worse, and the confrontations will become even more difficult. Let me say this to everybody in the audience, not you, Larry, or your wife, but just to everybody in the audience. We need to be braver. We need to trust God. How could we claim to love somebody, know they're living outside of the will of God, and not say anything to them about it? How would we explain that to Jesus? So here's what we need to do when we know somebody is living outside of the will of God. Then what we've got to do is tell them the truth in love, and then just accept whatever consequences happen. Here's what I can promise you will happen. Even if you don't like the way they respond, the Holy Spirit won't leave them alone. I can't tell you over the years how many people have come to me a year, two years, even 10 years later and said, Pastor Ron, I was so angry with you when you told me that, but you were right. And that's what God used to get me back. So Larry, that's what Needs to be done. Thank you very, very much for the question. 3409585. Here is an anonymous question that came in. Um, I know that worldly people see and view what is beautiful differently than what God's word says. But here's a question that sparked my curiosity. What do you suppose God's view of liposuction and Botox is for one to look skinny in order to enhance their appearance? We are definitely not what we would look like if the fall didn't happen. Boy, Mary, you're sure right about that. And then she says this. I have to admit, I wish I could get some liposuction done. At the same time, I know God's word says, All beautiful you are, my darling. I've knitted you together in your mother's womb. I wanted to get your thoughts. It's something I've been battling. Um, I'm, I'm okay with people that want to get plastic surgery or those kind of modifications. There's nothing wrong with looking good. Nothing at all. Here's the problem. And I'm going to make this a non-personal question. Um, just, just for everybody. Um, if we want to look better. But we're not willing to control our diet. And exercise. Then it doesn't matter what you do. Surgically. Uh, because the problem is going to persist. So I think this is an opportunity for everybody to say, you know what, I'd like to get a little bit of work done. It's okay. As long as you're not motivated only by vanity, I think this is a matter that needs to be prayed through. Make sure that the Lord is telling you it's going to be okay. Um, But but the one thing I I don't think any of us should do is take shortcuts. We have a woman in our church who has lost... um, over 220 pounds, I think, by now, uh, over the last three or four years. And um, my joy with this, with, with this woman is that she's added 20 years to her life. I'm not a doctor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. But, but the idea there is she's added decades to her life. And this is a woman who loved Jesus so much, and God has such a plan for her. He's given her such wonderful gifts, and she's going to be able to use those gifts now for 20 or more years, longer than she would have if she didn't do anything at all. So being healthy and looking good, those are good things. Now, when God says, all beautiful you are, my darling, um, that's how he sees you. He's not talking about our physical appearance to other people. Um, we're we're not predestined to be uh overweight or or to to be unhealthy we We typically do that to ourselves, but looking your best is a good thing and I think anybody would say that uh, getting liposuction or botox uh is wrong or it's sin um I think they don't really know the heart of god um So if it makes you feel better, it's fine. I get this question about breast enhancement uh, quite often, Anonymous. And, um, you know, that's a personal matter. That's a personal matter. A husband, a wife, uh, a single woman, and and the Lord. uh, Do what the Lord leads you to do. You're free in Christ. Just always, always, always check your motives. If your only motive is to look good, then you're probably not going to get the freedom from the Lord to do it. If your motive is, Lord, I want to be healthy and I want to serve you. I want to be able to to share you with other people. And then a benefit would be that you'd be looking better. Well, that's sort of the best of both worlds. So that's um, uh, an old man's view um, in response to your question. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Lisa. What is the key to a godly marriage and dealing with differences of opinion? Lisa, this is the easiest question I'm ever going to get. The key is Jesus, being submitted to Jesus. I say all the time, you know, Amos three three says, different context, but this principle works in every situation. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So it's real simple. The key to a godly marriage is a husband and a wife seeking the heart of God on these issues. If Paul and I, um, we just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, uh, so we've got some experience here, but if Paul and I agree to agree with Jesus, then we can never disagree. Whenever we do marriage conferences, I say something nobody believes. Uh, I, I mean literally, nobody believes. I start off by saying, if you'll do what we tell you to do during this marriage series or this marriage seminar, then you'll never argue again with one another. I didn't say you won't have difference of opinion, but you'll never argue. And people say, oh, come on, you have to argue. We have different opinions about things. And But, but see... When a husband has one opinion, wife has another opinion, what they need to be able to do, Lisa, is say, I'm going to throw those opinions out the door. Jesus, what is your opinion? That's the only one that matters. And if you and your husband have agreed to agree with Jesus, then there's no problem finding out what God wants us to do in a situation. And then we simply recognize that, Lord, we're being pleasing to you by being obedient. And now we know, Lord, you're going to bless it. And you're going to knit our hearts together and we're going to be closer than we've ever been before. So I think that's the most important key, submitting to the will of God for your lives. It's very simple. Every problem a husband and wife will have is covered in the Bible, either specifically or in principle. So it's never difficult finding out what God would have you do. Now, let me give you another key, the word, Lisa, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. You and your husband need to be in the Word, together, on a regular basis. I realize people can't do it every day, but most days, the husband and wife ought to be reading to each other. You know, I can't read anymore, so Paula reads to me. Um, And and, uh, in in this sense, that's been a blessing. It's not a blessing, losing your vision. But um, I've seen firsthand what the supernatural power of God can do. Um, as she reads to me, God knits our hearts together we know each other better we are, our hearts are 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 bare before one another uh, we, when you 're in the word together you can 't keep secrets from one another. And God will minister to each each of you in that marriage, and he'll do it in a supernatural way. What we do is we don't take the time and we wonder why things aren't getting better. And it's because God's Spirit is, is has been quenched. We're not able to really, really understand um, just how important it is to walk together in agreement. And the only way we can do that is to be in his word. So those are the two most important things. Third, and this is also important. Um, um, but, but third, I'd say praying for one another. And I don't mean uh, just separately. Uh, I, I'm sure husbands and wives pray for, for each other all the time. But to do it physically, in proximity. That's what we do. We, we, Paul and I, we take a walk. I, I'll go out and exercise. She'll go out and exercise. And then we'll meet. And the last time, we'll, we'll take a couple laps around the, the neighborhood just so we can walk together and pray. And, um, you know, that's that's important. If you do those things, I promise you, you will have a godly marriage. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Malcolm. Uh, he says, uh, Pastor Ron, you get a lot of questions about the rapture and the great tribulation. Doesn't that seem negative to you? Why would we focus on that instead of the good things in our lives? Um, Malcolm, um, I, I honestly don't understand the question. Uh, I'm not being difficult here. I, I just don't understand this perspective. Um, we focus on the rapture because it's the, the, the great hope for, the, for, for Christians. It's our blessed hope. That's what what the New Testament calls it. Why wouldn't we focus on the blessed hope? The idea that Jesus is going to come at any moment. I mean, all you've got to do is look around at the world that we live in. It's getting worse and worse. It's getting more and more evil. And Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you from it, and you're going to be with me forever. How can we not focus on that? I am 100% convinced that the power in the first century church was in the largest part due to the fact that those New Testament Christians, those new church Christians, they expected Jesus to come at any moment. They lived their lives like they expected it. I think they got up every morning and looked at the eastern sky and thought this could be the day. And they go out and share their faith. They go out and make different decisions about their lives. So negative, how can that be negative? One other thought here, Malcolm. I have a lot of good things in my life. I love it. I I truly love my life. I live the richest, fullest, most satisfying life. more, More so than I ever dreamed. But as much as I love my life, it's nothing compared to looking into his face. It's nothing compared to hearing that voice call me by a new name. Looking at those scars that were just for me. There's nothing negative about that. And believe me, compared to that, there's nothing in this world holding on, worth holding on to. And I say that as somebody, I remind you who just said, I love my life. But you've got to look around this world and be realistic, too. Mark this, Paul said to Timothy as he was getting himself ready to die. In the last days, and its emphasis in the very last days, there will be perilous times. And he goes on in Second Timothy chapter 3 to describe the very world that we live in now. Who wouldn't want to be rescued from this? Who isn't tired of the injustice? Who isn't tired of the lies? Who isn't tired of of the, the, the insanity that we see every day. Jesus is coming to set it straight. And Malcolm, if you're, an, if you're a believer, if you're born again, that desire is in your heart. The desire for justice, the desire for um, um, fairness, for holiness. And if you're focusing on the things in this world, none of that's true. So I hope that makes sense to you, Malcolm. Last question. This one comes from Maddie. I have two minutes. I can do it, Maddie. What is the purpose of the 1,000-year reign of Christ? Um, Maddie, Jesus has made a lot of promises. He's made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's made promises to Moses. He's made promises to David. Um, and, and, And those are unconditional promises, and they haven't been fulfilled yet. The thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, Maddie, is going to be the fulfillment of all those promises, where Jerusalem will be, once again, the center of the world's attention. It will be where Jesus takes the the throne of David and and rules in everlasting righteousness forever and ever, where justice is holy and pure and swift, where the curse is reversed the earth won't be pristine but but the curse is reversed and we'll get an idea of what god had for us and for a thousand years we're going to enjoy that reign. and as new believers are born again believers uh Maddie, we're going to rule and reign with jesus now we don't know exactly what that means we don't know what our job is we're not given that kind of detail but once we find that thousand year reign of christ on earth believe me, we're going to see exactly what God intended the world to be, a world of righteousness and justice. And that's what he's going to do. So that's why he's going to do it. Instead of taking us right to heaven, he's going to show just what the earth could have been. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, tonight we have our men's and women's and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4